Let's open to Mark 14. And we'll start there in verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be also spoken in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as your body, as one man, to ask you to speak. Lord, we ask for help from the outside that you would take your word as the song says and that you would plant it deep within us. Lord, that we would have broken up ground, that the Spirit this morning might find the good soil to plant the Word deeply, past all of the superficial aspects of our life, past all of the wrong thoughts that we have about Christ, past all of these things way down deep so that it might grow up and push these things out of the way and that we would have a more clear understanding about who Christ is and what He wants. And we are confessing this morning that any good comes from You. It's not enough to preach good sermons. It's not enough to listen to good sermons. There must be life. And we just confess this morning we are not like Christ who has life in Himself. The Father has given the Son to have life in Himself. That is no one in this room, Lord. But that is Your Son. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit this morning to come into this place and to give us help from the outside to change us, to fashion us, to mold us into the likeness of Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want us to talk um, this morning, and this message this morning is for anyone who has ever had a desire to please Christ. Um, let's just lay aside the question of the moment um, on concerning whether or not you've actually ever done that. Um, 
I hope that the, the message this morning and this text will answer that question. So we're going to lay aside that question for the moment. But the question that we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, have you ever had that ache in your heart just to be pleasing to Christ? Have you ever been able to say with Paul the Apostle, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. And you've known something about that. You've known something of that pull inside of your chest. I I want so much to please Christ. Well, I think that this that is what this text is all about. And before we get into answering that question and to see... W- what it is that pleases Christ, um, we need to see a little bit of the context. So we need to see, um, you know, what is going on with this story, what's the context it's located in, what happened, and then the disagreement over what happened. So the context, what happened, and the disagreement over what happened. You note here in the context, we read 1 through 11, we're going to be talking about what this woman did here. Um, who if, just as a side note, this is Mary. This is Mary. Um, There's two, from my understanding, there's two anointings of Christ in this manner in the Gospels, and they're they're done by two different women. Um, The one in Matthew, here in Mark, and John are talking about Mary, and we know it's Mary because John says that it's Mary. And then there's one in Luke that seems to be a different woman. There's a different house. It's a different context. The woman's described differently. And so if you're wondering who this is, this is Mary. And if you want to do a little more investigation on that, just look at those parallel accounts. It's Matthew 26 and John 12 is where you'll find those. So this is Mary. And in every way, I mean, you, love, you have to love these gospel writers. Because, uh, they're, I mean, they're recording what happened and they're, they're bringing out the highlights to help you just to feel the weight of what's going on. Before and after this context, you have just stark unbelief. And in every way, Mary serves as a contrast. You saw right here as we read in, um, in verses 1 and 2, you have these chief priests and the Pharisees. They're seeking Christ by stealth because they don't want to cause a riot among the people. Here comes Mary and she's seeking Christ in open view and she could care less who's watching. As it follows, you see the greed of Judas and he's willing to sell Christ for 30 pieces of silver. That is the price of a slave. Well, here's Mary and she pours one year's wages on the body of Christ. She is in every way a contrast to the stark unbelief that is surrounding her. Both of these parties had seen Christ's signs. The signs of Christ, the miracles that He did, were windows. And what happened with the former group, they got occupied with a window. What happened with Mary is she looked through the window, saw what was on the side, other side, namely the glory of Christ, and she was captivated by it. She saw Christ. She had spiritual apprehension of who Christ really was, and she saw it, and it just wrenched her heart. Like it says there in Song of Solomon, draw me with the cords of love. There is a big difference between trying to follow Christ, you're trying to work something up, and when you feel like Christ has got a cord of love around your heart and He is pulling you along, 
There's a big difference. And that's Mary. That's Mary. Um, you, you would think that a woman like this would never have any trouble. Right? I mean, you would think that someone who is just this in love with Christ would have no trouble at all. But on the contrary, this girl can't stay out of trouble. She's, in some places, she's sitting when people think that she should be serving. Here, she's serving. They think that she should be sitting. I mean, she just cannot get it right. She is such an enigma to everyone around her, yet when you read the Gospels, you begin to get the feeling this woman understands something about Christ that most people are missing. Out of all of the Gospel stories and all of the people in the Gospel, when you read it, even though she comes up rather briefly, you get the feeling she sees something that a lot of people aren't seeing here. She sees something on a deeper level that a lot of people are missing and and so Christ is always defending her. He's always defending her. That's what so intrigues me about this. She never has to say a word. She never has to say a word. It's always Christ speaking up on her behalf. And it's His defense of her in this passage here that I hope will occupy our time this morning and answer that question about pleasing Christ. So his defense of her here. And the thing of it is, is he's not apathetic about this. Um, they are indignant. Did you notice the language there? Some were indignantly remarking to one another. Um, and also it says they were scolding her. They're indignant, so is he. They scold her, he scolds them. Why are you bothering her? I mean, that's pretty strong language. Let her alone. Let her alone. There are some critical issues some very, very critical, foundational, fundamental issues that are at stake here in this passage and in this story that if are not understood, they will give you a real hard time in the Christian life. A real hard time and I hope that as we move on through this passage, you'll begin to see what those issues are and to see how Christ addressed them. So that's kind of the context, the act. Mary walks in through the door and she's carrying an alabaster vial of perfume worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was about a day's wages, so do the math. This is expensive perfume, all right? And so, calculated correctly, if this perfume's used in the right way, it could be worth, it could make a tremendous impact. A tremendous impact. Just to give you a little bit of kind of just to get your mind roped around this. You know, in John chapter 6, um, Jesus looks up. He sees the crowd coming to him. He turns to Philip. He says, no, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? And Philip answers him, 200 denarii would not feed this group of people. The thought there is 200 denarii wouldn't, but probably more than that would. Well, we're talking about 300 denarii here. So... 200 denarii for 5,000 people, probably more than that, would feed them. We're talking about 300 denarii, all right? So thousands of people could be affected here. And so that's what's happening. And I love John's description of this because she walks through the door and before anyone can stop her, and you can almost see this, you can see her walking through the door. They know this woman. They know, I just sure as I'm sitting here, she's going to break that vial and pour it on his head. 
I know she's going to do it. And sure enough, she walks in, breaks the vial, and pours it over the, her um, Christ head. And John describes it like this. He says, And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If you've read John, you know that he is saying a lot more than there was a very strong smell at that point in the house. He's saying more than that. He is saying the adoration of that woman filled the house. It was everywhere. It's all in her hair. It's all over Christ. The whole atmosphere is saturated with her adoring worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's at that point right there that there's a disagreement. At that very point, there's a disagreement that comes in. And there are two radically opposing viewpoints about what she did and whether or not she should have done that. The first viewpoint is that of the disciples. As we said, there's a parallel um, passage here of this story in the Gospel of John in chapter 12. And that parallel account lets us know that Judas is the one who actually voiced um, the disagreement here. However, if you read this text right here in Mark 14 and especially Matthew 26, you see that the disciples were in agreement with what he said. With Judas, it was something malicious. It was something twisted and bad. With the disciples, it was totally logic. Totally logic. Alright? So you remember how much we said and how big of an impact that 300 denarii could have on thousands of people. And so the disciples are looking at this situation. They're saying, okay, you could have affected, you could have used this on thousands of people, or you could have used this on one person. I mean, that's logic. That's, that's a simple syllogism right there. Just put that into a little logical syllogism, churn it out. That, that is a no-brainer. You should have used it on the thousands of people. You could have had a huge impact here, and you missed your opportunity. Now, if we just take a step back for a moment, we might can begin to sympathize where these disciples are coming from. They are used to seeing Christ take something very small, like say five barley loaves and a couple of fish, and turn it into something very big, like feeding 5,000 people. Here this woman is, she walks in and she uses something that seems to be very big in a very small way. And when they see that, they say, you wasted that. That's pure logic. You, you just wasted that perfume. You wasted it. So that's the verse, first viewpoint. Waste. And that's the disciples. And you see that right here. Verse 5. I mean, verse 4. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? But Christ disagrees. Verse 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Now, you know, this is amazing right here because the disciples weren't even talking to him. All right. They weren't even talking to him. If you read up there in verse 4, they were talking to one another. But Christ volunteers this information anyway. He says in verse 6, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. Now, Jesus is about to radically define what a good work is. 
You want to talk about good works? Christ is about to give you a definition of what a real good work is. Everybody's talking about good works, you know, feeding the poor and things like that. We know those are good. We know that. We know that intuitively. However, Christ is about to give a radical redefinition of what a truly good work is. And you know, this word right here, good, it's the same word, um, same word used over in Luke 21.5 when the disciples were walking by and they were, saw the temple and they were talking about all of the beautiful stones. Exact same word. Beautiful, good. And that's why some of you have the ESV. The ESV translates it beautiful. And that's, that catches a little bit more of the idea because a lot of times we think of good as status quo. You know, you get to the end of kind of a debate over where you're going for food and somebody finally says, okay, that's good. You know, it's, all right, we'll do that. That's not the force of what Christ is saying here. He is saying, no, you say waste, I say that this is absolutely beautiful. Um, and if that does not help you to feel the weight of his disagreement into this situation, consider this. You know, I mentioned that in Jude, I mean, in John chapter 12, it's Judas that voices the disagreement here. Christ knows Judas. Christ knows Judas like the back of his hand. Christ knows two things about Judas. Number one, Judas was going to betray him. He knew that. He knew that from the beginning. He knew that before he chose Judas. He knew beyond the shadow of a doubt, this man is going to betray me. He also knew a second thing. Judas is eaten alive with greed. He is eaten alive with greed. If you read the context in chapter 12, it tells you why Judas says that. He says, because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. When Judas saw that wasted right there, his idea was, I could have gotten that in the money box and I could have, I mean, a year's wages would have been in my hands. He is eaten alive with greed. And Christ knows that he is a bomb waiting to happen. And so, with these two elements together, if Christ defends her in this situation, it is going to create the perfect storm. This thing is going to push Judas over the edge. And it did. Look down here in verse 10. Then, alright, then, and right after this happened, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. This pushed Judas over the edge and Christ knew. If he didn't know that it would, certainly. I mean, you, you can just see with these two elements together, this would create just a perfect storm. And Christ is in effect saying, I would rather have my back laid open by a scourge than for this woman or anyone else in the entire world not to know I loved every drop. I would rather submit myself to being beaten with rods than for anyone to be unclear on this issue as to who I am and what I want. Christ died for this. I don't mean that Christ just died so that you may worship Him. That's true. I mean Christ died to make sure that this message got out. This was one of the crucial Acts in the life of Christ that set in motion the cross. Christ defending this woman right here. It triggered that. So this is critical. This is crucial. And so my question is, what on earth did this woman do? 
What did she do? I mean, this is amazing. And so the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning is, what are the characteristics of the gift, about the gift that Christ calls beautiful? What are the characteristics of this gift? And I believe that we're not left to guess. I think Christ outlines it in His defense about what the components were about this woman and what she did that Christ stamps beautiful. You say waste, I'm saying this is beautiful and I will die for what this woman just did. So what are those characteristics? I want to sum it up in one short sentence and then unpack it. The gift that Christ characterizes as beautiful. A person with their affections set on Christ doing what they can. That's it in a nutshell. My understanding of this passage, a person with their affections, their heart, Set on Christ doing what they can. Now, when you first hear that, you just think, oh, that is so quaint. That is so quaint. That cannot be it. That feels so beneath His dignity. That cannot be what's going on in this passage. Well, let's hold that thought. Take that thought and put it up on a shelf and let's... See, as this passage unfolds, if indeed that's what Christ is saying. A person with their heart set on Christ, doing what they can. <clears throat> so let's deal with the first part. A person with their affection set on Christ. Number one, we must have our affections set on Christ. Christ must be first in our heart. There was a time years back when I got mixed up with a group. I did not fully know when I got involved with them all that they believed, but they were into something that's called liberation theology. Some of you may know what liberation theology is. It is super strong in Latin America, and it's super strong when you mix Catholicism in. And so you can imagine Latin America is just eaten alive with this stuff. And basically what liberation theology says, it says several things. It says, you know, you don't necessarily need special revelation like the Bible to know God. You need to walk with the poor. And as you begin to suffer with the poor, that's the way you come to know the Lord. And the great problem in the world is not unbelief. The great problem is in the world is oppression of the lower classes. And so the answer to all this is not a substitutionary atonement by the Son of God. The answer to all of the world's problems is liberation of the oppressed classes. So you kind of get an idea here. These people are all about the poor. We need to help the poor. We need to set these lower classes free. And as this stuff began to unfold, <laughs> and I am in a different country here, and I'm starting to see... You know, starting to see these ideas and hearing these things be said, and I start contemplating them and thinking through them. And I mean, it's like my head was just a whirlwind. It was one, it, it, quite possibly one of the lowest points of my life when all this started to come out. But you know what happened? This verse grabbed a hold of my conscience and did not let go until my plane touched down in Birmingham. I, I'm, I'm talking Mark 14. Alright, this verse right here. 
Verse 6, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good to, deed to me. Verse 7, and here's the one. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Verse 7 of chapter 14 of the book of Mark grabbed a hold of my conscience and weighed like 10,000 bricks day and night until I called someone and said, you've got to get me, buddy. I've got to get out of here. And as soon as I touched down in Birmingham, it was gone. It was gone. It was crystallized to me in that moment. Christ has to be first in my heart. It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. And you know, this seems to be the chief complaint of God throughout biblical history, right? They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You realize that verse is both in the Old Testament and the New Testament? I mean, I think God's saying something to us here. That is His chief complaint. They've got this form of godliness. And like Leonard Ravenhill said, it's straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. It's hollow. There's no heart. But I want the heart. That's what I'm after. Turn with me to Revelation 2. Maybe just keep your finger in Mark 14. We'll jump back there. But let's look at Revelation 2. Now remember, our succinct statement... A person with Christ first in their affections, doing what they can. We're under number one, Christ must be first in the affections. And we're seeing the weight that the, the, the Bible gives to this. So we're proving this point. We want to, we want to feel what the Bible emphasizes. Alright, so Revelation chapter 2, let's start in verse 2. This is to the church at Ephesus. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. The majority of us would love to see more churches like that. All right, right? I mean, these people are strong in doctrine. You know, they've got these people coming up claiming to be apostles, claiming to have a word from God. They begin to test and say, no, absolutely not. That's not right. They're, they're all about the glory of God here. They've got great perseverance in these things. All right, so this sounds just like, man, this would be, this is great. But listen to what Christ says. And, and don't get used to this. Do not get used to this passage. We've read it 10 million times and you can read it and it's just like reading words on a page. Think about what's being said here. But this, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless... You repent. That is amazing to me. That tells me something, first of all, you can be doctrinally, 
precise. I mean just as sharp as a needle on your doctrine. And you can take like a scalpel and dissect theology and you know the Bible backwards and forth and can basically answer any question given to you. And yet, if he doesn't have your heart, he says, if you don't get that changed, I'm going to come and I'm taking your lampstand away. You're not going to be a church anymore. If we miss this, beloved, God will come and take our lampstand away and we'll be just another building with a name on it. Just another, just another little group of people that gets together once a week and you know, talks about some things and whatnot. If we miss this, we miss everything. It's not that doctrine is in, not important. Doctrine is extremely important. But I'm saying that you can make a fairly big mess doctrinally and yet if Christ has your heart, He's so pleased. He's so pleased. And yet, you can be as precise as you possibly can be. And if Christ doesn't have your heart, He is angry and He says, I'm going to come and take your lampstand away. You better get back to your first love. This explains to us why a guy like David can make the mess that he did and God says, yeah, but he's a man after my heart. He wants my heart. That's amazing. Church history witnesses to this. George Mueller said that it was his great business. If you want to talk about priorities in the life of George Mueller, it was not the orphans. It's not all of these money and different finances thing. If you wanted to talk about him on a daily level, he said the first thing and my greatest priority in my life is that every morning I make sure that my soul is happy in the Lord. All right? That's where he put his emphasis. I want to make sure that if I don't get anything else accomplished today, if I get one thing, I'm going to be happy. My soul, satisfied, happy, glad in the Lord. And you know, Brother Charles has told us that Valer Zuki used to always tell them, brothers, cultivate the love relationship with Christ. He said they would, he would remind them of that truth more than any, probably more than anything else. Be sure to give attention to the love relationship with Jesus Christ. It is so important. And the whole thing is summed up in Proverbs 23 when he says, Give me your heart. Give me your heart. That's what God's after. God wants your heart. And so the question is, is Christ first? And our affection. So when we talk about the gift that Christ is calling beautiful here, we're talking, uh, we're saying that the heart is a big thing. That is a big thing in what's going on here. Christ was first in her heart. However, I think that there is another issue in this text and oftentimes is even a greater problem for us. Because if you don't understand this second thing, you're going to be disheartened. It's going to be like a drain on the bottom of your love relationship with Jesus Christ and the plug's constantly going to be falling out. The second thing. Notice what he says about her. Turn back to Mark 14. Verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has done what she could. That is amazing to me. 
That is amazing. That is the second characteristic of what Christ calls when He says this is beautiful. That's what He's talking about. She did what she could. Again, again, it just hits you. It's like, that is so quaint. That feels so beneath His dignity. But let's let Him defend Himself. Alright? Alright, let's just again... Put that back up on the shelf back up there and let's leave it there and let's see, is this the way he really is? Is that text just at face value exactly what he's talking about? You know, because we feel this, right? He's a king. We sang it this morning, worthy of worship, worthy of praise, uh, worthy of more than I could ever bring, right? And that's the reason why we have so many of these hymns. And um, like one of the hymn writers says, Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Right? And there's a sense in which that's true. That, that is true. We know that's true. But we need to let Christ speak for Himself here. Because if you begin to misunderstand what statements like that are saying, like I said, it is going to just suck the life out of you. Um, and some of you may be thinking, now wait a second, you know, her gift actually was big, right? 300 denarii, I mean, that is a big dip, gift. But the thing is here is not to look at the gift, it's to look at the way that Christ defends the gift. He does not defend this gift or what she did along the lines of, yeah, guys, now wait a second, you've got to realize that she just made a huge sacrifice here. You know, she just gave a very big thing, and let's just let's back off of this. I appreciate your ministry-mindedness, but let's back off for a second. He doesn't say anything like that at all. The size of the gift never comes into the argument from Christ's side. What comes into the argument is she did what she could. She gave what she had and the way that she could, and that's all that she could do. She had, that's what she had. And so that's what she gave. She did what she could. Alright? So the problem with this thinking is letting others define this for us. The problem with this thinking is that we are so ingrained with our culture and we're so ingrained with wrong ideas about who Christ is and what He wants, we begin thinking in terms of making waves and impact. If I want to do something that is really pleasing to Christ, I have got to make some serious waves. I've got to do something big. And so you begin thinking, unless I go off into some foreign jungle living in 100% humidity on less than nothing, I cannot be all out for Christ. And you begin thinking, unless I, you know, do all of these just radical, radical things that people look on and they say, that is radical, that is big, and unless you're in the ministry, you can't be one of the people that are really pleasing to Christ. And basically the thought here is that I have got one vial to break and I have got to seriously make some waves if this is going to be anything worth, talk, worth even talking about. And so you know what happens when, this, when you get this mindset? When you get the mindset that the only thing that pleases Christ are these big things... You know, that you see other men do. You start reading biographies like Hudson Taylor or, or even Mueller there or name your jungle missionary, Jim Elliott. And you start thinking, you know, these, that is really what pleases Christ. Well, beloved, that's what pleased Christ for him, but that may not be what pleases Christ for you. Why? 
Because he was doing what he could. That's what God had put into his hands. And so the thing that happens here is when you have that mindset, you always start living into the future, right? It's always the future. Always you're waiting for this day to come when you're going to have more time, more resources, more time to pray, more time to read your Bible, more time to go out and witness, more time to go take a trip over to Indonesia, more time to go to South Africa, more time to do all of these things. You're always hoping for this future day that's going to come when your resources are finally going to be cleared up from all of these secular things when you can do something that really pleases Christ. And you know what that does to Christians? It leaves you disillusioned, disheartened, and exhausted. Far from Christ being His yoke. Far from His yoke being easy and His burden light. It begins to crush you. Because you begin to think that you have to go get everything that you don't have to become everything that you are not. Because that's what actually pleases Christ. You've got to see that this breaks His heart. It breaks His heart. He died so that you would get this story this morning. He died. He chose the cross rather than to let a story like this go by so that the church ends up in confusion and goes along what is a Catholic teaching. This is Catholicism. Catholicism teaches the distinction between the secular and the sacred. You know, there's the sacred things, all of the priests, they do all the things that are pleasing to God. And your only hope is that you get close to a priest or go to him enough that you can finally maybe have something that's a little bit pleasing to God. That's demonic. That is so anti-New Testament. It is so anti the teaching of Christ. You almost can't get further than that when you're talking about Christian practice. Christ is dead serious about this. He's dead serious about this. So there's little wonder why he's so sharp. There's little no wonder why he says, why are, you, why are you bothering? What you did, that's bo- you just bothered her. That's all that you did. You, you contributed absolutely nothing to this situation. The only thing that you did was just bother someone who had did something good. Christ is in earnest about this. Now let's ask ourselves a question. Does this principle ever come up anywhere else in Scripture? What principle? The idea of doing what you can. The idea of asking yourself, what has God sovereignly put into my life? Because what He has sovereignly put into my life as far as positions and people and places is exactly the gift that He wants back from me. Alright? So does that, does that concept ever come up anywhere in the Bible? And I'm going to argue, absolutely, it's all over the place. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 5. It's even in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 5. Let's start in verse 7. The law of the guilt offerings, alright? So he's talking about what... You can give, and whether or not that will satisfy what's demanded. Verse 7. 
All right, let's start in verse 6. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Look down at verse 11. But if his means are insufficient... Now look, if you've got the NAS, you've got a little one out there beside the means, if you've got the 95, and it's got a circle around it. Look over in the column at what it says. If his hand does not reach. Alright? I like that. Because same thought with Moses. God comes to Moses. God's about to start delivering the people of Egypt. Moses is saying, how on earth is this going to happen? God says, what's in your hand? He said, well, I've got a staff in my hand. Alright, we're going to work with a staff. Alright? What's in your hand? If his hand does not reach, let's see what happens. If his hand does not reach for the two turtle doves or the two young pigeons... Um, then his offering for that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an effort. I can't pronounce that. A fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it for, a sin, for it is for a sin offering. Now that's amazing. On the barest form, you got the principle. Alright? If, if you bring one of these three things, the net result is the same. And what is the criteria for bringing these things? What your hand can reach. In other words, to ask the question, what is in your hand? What can you do? Alright? Now this is beyond talking about sacrificing the Christian life. That is so important. And that is why I'm not worried about killing missionary zeal this morning. I am so unconcerned about that because if Christ is first in your heart, you're going to get every place that you need to be with every person you need to be and you're going to do everything that you need to do. That is so peripheral to this discussion. The question that we're going to ask ourselves this morning is not what's going to happen in the future. The question that we're going to ask this morning is what do we have in our hand right now? Because the Bible is teaching, even in the book of Leviticus, way back there in the law, that there, there's this principle that we're already, to, already beginning to see emerge. All right, So that's, that's one spot. Let's go to Galatians 6. <clears throat> Galatians 6. Verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary, so then while, notice you got there a one again, as, as you, we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You begin to talk to people and you, you know, you... You meet a brother or a beloved sister, and they, they're, just, they're under this condemnation thing. They're not doing enough. So you begin to ask them, you know, all right, well, are, are you giving? Yes, I'm giving. Are you giving sacrificially? Yes, as, as much as we can, all right? Are you, are you being faithful to your family? Yes, I, I want to be faithful to my family. And, and I'm, I'm trying to do that to the best of my ability. God helping me. Are you being faithful at work? Yes, I'm trying to do my job for the glory of God. But I just, I feel like I'm not doing enough. Right? 
There's this vague thing out there that you're supposed to be doing. You cannot for the life of you figure out what it is. And so you're groping through and you're praying and you're looking through the Bible. What on earth am I, what am I supposed to be doing? And it's this thing out there as though your father would hide his wheel under the ground and then send you on a treasure hunt to go find it. And only a few special Christians find it. That is ludicrous. You know your father better than that. He would never do that to you. What does the Apostle Paul say? Do good as you have opportunity. In other words, what can your hand reach? What is in your hand? Let's look at one more. I mean, we could, we could go on all afternoon on this. We'll look at one more. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul here is talking to them. They started preparing a gift a long while back. And Paul is saying, finish with your gift. You know, you begin to prepare it. See this thing through and, you know, give it. You, you started it. Now I'm calling you to complete it. Verse 11. But now finish doing it also, the gift. So that just as there was readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. Alright? So right here in this one verse, we've got the two components of our statement. Christ first in the affections, and she did what she could. I see the two components right there. You see right up there? Readiness to desire it. Alright? So there's a heart thing. And at the end of the sentence, your ability. So the heart and the ability. Let's go on. Verse 12, for, all right, and you know he's proving something, not an isolated sentence, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. There it is. There it is. This is amazing. Mary did not do what she couldn't do. Why? She couldn't do it. You were looking for something spiritual. She couldn't do it. Now let me, let me ask you a question. It says specifically in Mark 14 that she did this in the context of her burial. Of his burial. You know, that perfume lasted a couple of hours, maybe. Why didn't she give him a tomb? You know, he could have used a tomb for three days. She didn't have a tomb. But Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb, so he gave a tomb. She had some perfume, so she gave some perfume. Beloved, what do you have? Amen. You know, there's a, there, is a, there is a verse here that I think is so important, and I feel my time running out a little bit. I don't want to keep you too long, but I, just, I want you to keep this verse in the back of your mind. It's Colossians 3, 23-24. Write that down. Write it on your hand. Write it on your doors. Write it all over the place. Because that is the verse that crystallizes this whole concept of destroying the idea that there's the secular and there's the sacred. There's things that God likes you to offer that He's given you, and then there's other things that you can't offer because, you know, there are secular type things um, like your job um, or raising your child or just go endless with that list. 
And here's what this verse says. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You think you've got a boss over here? That's not actually your real boss. All right, Your real boss is at the right hand of the throne of God and any little thing that you do for Him makes His heart beat faster. Like it says in Song of Solomon, you have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eye. He is not hard to please. So, this comes back really, really, it comes back down to the heart. And let's take um, my son Charlie. Let's take him as an example. Let's say that I go off somewhere and while I'm gone, Charlie's a little bit older, he couldn't do this now. Just a little older though. Okay, a little, he's four or five. I see, you can tell how much I know about raising kids. I don't even know what they do when. So he, he's older. He's old enough to begin helping his mom clean the house. And so... He begins to go through the house. I'm away and he's, he's cleaning up everything. He's tidying up. He's doing everything his mom tells him to do. He goes out in the yard. He you know, maybe picks up some of the stuff that's fallen in the yard. And when I come in the driveway, he's standing there and he's beaming. He's beaming. And so I get out of the car and he t- tells me all the things that, that he's done. And my heart is just overflowing with joy because, I mean, it's, it pleases me. It ple- I mean, he's just beaming. He's so, he's so excited about what he's done. But a couple of weeks later, I have to make another trip. And this time, because Rachel's tied up, Charlie has to go stay with his grandparents or someone. Well, when Rachel begins to clean the house and things like that, Charlie can't help. Why can't he help? He's not there, right? He can't get there. But at his grandparents' house, he finds a piece of paper and some crayons. And so he begins to put his heart and soul into this piece of paper and these crayons, and he makes me a card. And when I come home, he's standing on the driveway, and he's beaming. And when I walk up to him, he hands me a little piece of paper that looked like he swallowed crayons and threw up on the paper. This is no, you know what I'm talking about. This is no artistic masterpiece. If I am half, half the father that I should be, I will have no less joy over what he did. Why? Because he did what he could. He did what he could. He... Everything in his grasp, he put his heart and soul into making something as a gift for me. And my heart would just overflow. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that Charlie has a better father than you do? Now you begin to see why Christ is so dead serious about this. Realize this. Christ died for you to get this message this morning. That's right, you, with your boring, mundane, eight to five life that almost no one else notices, you. It is so hard to think that he would condescend to the level that people as boring and as mundane as we are, that he would actually like anything that we could offer him. But if you could see the heart of Christ this morning, if you can see the heart of Christ in Mark 14 and all 
over the Bible on these other texts, you will begin to get something of the glimpse of what happens when you are at your job trying to be faithful, when you're raising your child, your stay-at-home mom, when you're doing whatever else that you can do that's within your grasp. When you do that with Christ first in your heart, with a thought of, I want to offer this up to you because there is no secular, there is no sacred, it is you whom I serve, here's my little gift. When you do that, his heart beats faster and he is so pleased. He's so pleased. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Help us to see this truth, to believe this truth, to feel the weight of Christ's words here and to have our eyes opened to the love of God in the face of Christ and to be able to comprehend with all of the saints this glorious love of Christ that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. God, help us to see this. Help open our eyes, Lord. Enlighten the eyes of our heart. I pray this for us. In Christ's name, amen. can't uh, say this for sure, but I actually doubt if <clears throat> Mary knew what she was doing in terms of this being a anointing for this burial that was coming up. Um, I, unless God gave her a special revelation of that, I don't see how she would have known. She just knew that this is what was on her heart to do this. And Jesus says that uh, she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. In other words, it had a special significance to him that she didn't even realize. And I think that's a good lesson also for us. We don't realize most of the time, what we're doing, we just serve God, and, and God uses it in ways we can't imagine. I've made note of this a number of times, but on uh, this hymn writer's tomb, Fanny Crosby. You remember she was a blind, blind lady. And um, she loved the Lord and wrote songs to him. <laughs> and we still sing them. But on her tombstone, it says, she did what she could. Anyone have anything else here before we close?